you would please remain standing for the reading of God's word. I want to make a quick point here. Uh, All of us have different parts of our heart that are just engaged with different elements of worship. Some of us come here and our hearts are just energized to sing, others to pray, others uh, come to uh, receive the preaching, and uh, there's something inside of us that just like resonates uh, towards different elements of our worship. But what I want to encourage you with, uh, not just this morning, but as we move forward, is to see that the primary meal that we are eating on the mornings that we come here and gather together, the primary sustenance of a believer is the text of God's Word. It's not even the songs that we sing back in response. You are active, by the way. This is not something that you just come to receive. We are singing God's words back to him. We are praying God's words. We are doing God's word in coming and taking communion and in being baptized. There's lots of ways that we respond. This is not just a one-way kind of thing. But at this point, what we're doing is we're hearing from God. We're letting him speak to us. And so uh, even though we will be in all of uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, we're only going to read a few of the verses this morning. And so instead of uh, even opening up a copy, I just want you to be attentive to the things that God says to you this morning through these words and just receive them in this moment. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where, they, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, please be seated and pray with me. God and Father, you speak first. We did not beckon that we might hear you. You chose to speak to us. Lord, you reveal yourself. It is no small thing. And so, Father, as much as we can tell, we are left uh, here on this uh, earth with three things that you ordain, that you give. The first is your word. You've spoken to us. The second is with your spirit who delights in illuminating your word. And the third is your people who gather around your word. So Lord, as we pray this morning, we ask that you would illuminate this room, illuminate our hearts, illuminate our souls, illuminate this city and this world by the power of your word. Father, we pray um, with great humility that you would allow for us to be good listeners this morning to the things that you have to say. Lord, we pray this morning a special anointing and blessing on uh, Carl, an elder in this church, Lord, as he comes to... um, Tell us of what he's seen in your word. Lord, would you uh, just anoint him during this time? Would you give him an extra measure of the spirit? Lord, would you give him clarity as he comes and speaks? And Lord, would you uh, not allow for us to be anything but encouraged? 
Lord, we see in the last words of this passage that they were not a little encouraged. Lord, would you encourage us this morning by the way of your word? So, Father, as we consider these things, as we have Carl come up and uh, uh, speak about the things that he has seen and heard in your word, Lord, we ask that you would be with us, that you would illuminate uh, things by the power of your spirit in this room and that we would receive them together and that we would act on them as a body. Lord, we pray your blessing over this time in the great and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. morning. I'm delighted to be opening the Word of God with you today, and as uh, Chris has already read, we'll be feasting on Acts chapter 20 this morning, where we see that the church is a life-giving church. So first, we'll cover the story of Eutychus that Chris just read, being brought back to life, illustrating how the church at Troas was a life-giving community. Secondly, we'll uncover the activities of a life-giving community, then we'll nestle in the safety afforded by a life-giving community. And then finally, we'll wrap up by examining the ownership of a life-giving community. So that's where we're headed today. That's our roadmap. You can put those waypoints into your GPS and make sure that we visit all of those things. But I do, Chris already prayed for us. I just want to pray briefly again. So let's bow. Heavenly Father, I ask that your words would be encouraging to the disciples, to those who are gathered today, and that you would build us up as a result of a time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first I want to provide a little background on my experience with Church, a Life-Giving Community. That's a great title, very idealistic, Frankly, my experience with church has not always been Instagram-worthy, nor has it always erupted in a TikTok-scripted dance of joy. Now, I realize the hydraulic engineer section of TikTok dances is rather small, but nonetheless. Um, so there was the time that my reputation was mercilessly destroyed by unfettered gossip from people in the church. Ouch, that hurt. Time to move to a different church body. A couple decades later, Susan and I had rushed back from my nephew's wedding in Houston to make it back for a specially called church business meeting. The point of the business meeting, surprise, the church is moving out of state. It's going to be in North Carolina. Oh, I kind of felt abandoned by that. Then there was the time that was my fault. I left a church body suddenly without appropriately warning the pastor and the other leaders. I must humbly confess that it was not a God-honoring departure on my behalf because that departure hurt people in that church. So I recognize that you may have experienced similar disappointment. Your mileage may vary. But in light of these depressing events, wouldn't it just be better that I would be wouldn't it, shouldn't I simply become bitter, walk out of church, and maybe just go ride my recumbent bicycle on the Trinity Trail on Sunday mornings and never go back to church ever again? Wouldn't that be a reasonable reaction? 
After each of these disappointments, I was still drawn back to the church body precisely because it is a life-giving community. And this is the kind of life-giving community that Acts chapter 20 describes. The Lord has made me and it has made you for community. When I find myself without a church community, I realize just how much I desperately want and need that life-giving community that a church affords. We are made for community. We are made for relationship. So let's dive into Acts chapter 20 now, where we see how the church can be a refreshing, life-giving community. So the story of Eutychus illustrates that church can be a life-giving community. Just to kind of recap what Chris read, so Paul sailed into Troas. He's on his long missionary journey, so he plops down in Troas for about a week with believers in the church. So the church gathered on the first day of the week, so that was a church gathering, and they broke bread, so they had celebrated communion. And the place was so jam-packed that Eutychus, he was very nice, he was a young man, so he let the old guys like me sit on the ground floor. But Eutychus took a place on a third-story window. So if you look behind you, there's actually a third-story window. And so that it's that type of window where do you think your parents would let you sit? No, they would not. That's extremely unsafe. But anyway, Eutychus was a nice young man, and it, there was a, very hard to find spots, so that's where he ended up. Well, there were lots of lamps in the place, and so he started to get drowsy. Paul keeps talking until midnight. That's after probably Eutychus' bedtime. I don't know. But anyway, Eutychus got drowsy. He fell asleep, and he fell to the ground and died. Paul calms everybody and says, stay cool, guys. That's not actually a direct rendering of the Greek, by the way. That's my paraphrase. And said the life is still in him. Paul brings Eutychus back to life. Paul resumes speaking until daybreak, and everyone is comforted, probably by his words and by the fact that Eutychus was raised back to life. So Eutychus was physically resurrected at church that day. He was dead, but he was raised back to life. So Eutychus becomes our poster boy, our young man, for receiving life from a life-giving community. Church is meant to be a life-giving community. So is our church a life-giving body of believers? Is there life to be found in this gathering? And that's a helpful evaluation question. I think the answer to that question is yes, by the way, just so that you know. So that's a great single concept. Church is a life-giving community. But I'm an engineer that likes details, so how can we ensure that City Church is a life-giving community? So let's examine some of the activities mentioned in today's text that are part of a life-giving community. Acts 20 is all about churches. The first part of Acts 20 is Paul traveling around and he's doing his thing and encouraging and comforting disciples and churches as he's going around. Then Paul speaks to the church at Troas with Eutychus. That's the, uh, what Chris read. And then the closing part of this chapter is Paul briefly encouraging the Ephesian elders in Miletus, which is... Uh, verses 17 through 38. There's two facts worthy of note to uh, Paul's address to the elders at Ephesus. So again, this is Paul's farewell tour. He is talking to the Ephesian elders, 
and says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So the Holy Spirit has told Paul that he will not return to these parts again. We should pay attention. Paul has a long ministry experience. He is distilling a lifetime of experience into a few words. Secondly, Luke only records the words of one speech to Christians in the book of Acts. All the other sermons that you've been hearing are uh, to the general public. These, however, so those sermons that you've heard are talking about how to get inside the church. But Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders is covering life inside the church, unlike the rest of the book of Acts. So let's read together Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, verses 18 through 38. I just could not resist uh, reading that. So go ahead and put that up on the screen behind me. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him, and he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will sing my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And we had, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they should not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Okay. 
So that's a lot of words. What goes on inside a life-giving community or church? So I think it's helpful to kind of run through kind of the whole chapter of Acts 20, and let's go harvest some verbs. Now, I know we probably have some frustrated gardeners out there. You may not have started your garden, so you're probably not harvesting herbs. Today, we're actually going to be harvesting harvesting verbs instead. It's, it's a lot more like harvesting herbs. It's just there's more action involved. Okay, so in 1 and 2, we see Paul running around. He's encouraging disciples. In 7, we see Paul gathering together and breaking bread. Then uh, in 12, that we see the comforting to the believers. Then the instructions that I just read to the elders, Paul talks about testifying of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see him talking about proclaiming the kingdom of God, declaring the whole counsel of God, protecting the flock from outside the church, protecting the flock from errors inside the church, building up believers by commending them to God and to the word of his grace, helping the weak, giving generously, and praying. So these verbs illustrate how a church operates as a life-giving community. But a list of 10 is just too many for me to really remember. Okay, I, that's beyond me. So let, let's kind of try to distill that down a little bit. I actually found two kind of uh, categories that I could kind of slide each one of these into. So category one was kind of the corporate nature, so the assembling, the communing with believers and with God. So there's the so under that category, the gathering together, the breaking of bread, that's actually communing, communing with God, that's part of the vertical relationship. And then the horizontal relationship as we were gathered, helping the weak, generous giving, encouraging and comforting, and prayer, that's kind of reinforcing the vertical relationship God and man. And then kind of on the word-centric stuff, the stuff you can't do without the word, is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? How do you repent? What is faith in Christ? I need the word to be able to do those things accurately and correctly. Proclaiming the kingdom of God, I need the word for that. Declaring the whole counsel of God, that's found in the scriptures. Building up believers by commending them to God and to the word of his grace. The word is in there. Protecting the flock from wolves outside the church, false teachers. You need the word to know what is false doctrine. Protecting the believers from twisted false teaching inside the church. I need the Bible to know, to be able to discern what is true and what is false. So I'm going to kind of uh, combine those. So the activities of a life-giving community are gathering and communing with God and believers to encourage and comfort and kind of tuck in prayer and service and giving under that. And then in the second category, edifying by the scriptures, proclaiming the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus and protection from false teachers and teachings both outside and inside. So time for a little orthodoxy check. Am I going down the straight and narrow way or am I wildly diverging with this from the accepted teaching? Well, I went to Grudem's Systematic Theology, which summarizes Martin Luther and John Calvin on the topic of what constitutes a church. 
So, quoting from there, in large measure, there was agreement between Martin Luther and John Calvin on the question of what constituted a true church. The Lutheran statement of faith, which is called the Augsburg Confession of 1530, defined the church as the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. Article 7, in case you want to go look that up this afternoon. Similarly, John Calvin said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is not, to be doubted, a church of God exists. So, both of them agree that you need believers and saints gathered, the gospel of Jesus preached, and the sacraments, communion and baptism. So, I have left out baptism in my review of Acts chapter 20, so I do need to add baptism in there. But walking in the footsteps of Lutheran Calvin is a good place to be. So, thinking through these examples that we have seen in Acts chapter 20 makes it more clear why we do what we do as a church body. We gather weekly, just like the church at Troas. We read and preach the scripture, we proclaim the, which is proclaiming the kingdom of God through, through repentance and pointing people towards faith in Jesus. We take communion, which we will do later on in the service. We are gathered for the purpose of breaking bread, communing with God. We have discipleship groups to discourage and comfort other believers. We have a quarterly feast for that horizontal relationship among believers. We have quarterly prayer, praying with the elders, which is, we saw Paul doing, that vertical relationship, and weekly and quarterly worship. So just to summarize again, what I see in Acts 20, the activities of life-giving community, we need to be gathering and communing with God and believers to encourage and comfort, including prayer, service, and giving, and we need to edify by the scriptures. We need to proclaim the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus and to protect from false teachers and teachings outside and inside. So two occasions come to mind where this list is helpful. First, it's worthwhile list for a church to ponder the bare necessities of a church body during COVID. In other words, kind of the way to ask that is what is the least that a church can do and still be a church? Paul and the believers in the church at Troas met together on the first day of the week to break bread, to commune with one another and with the Lord. Some churches have completely stopped gathering, giving, gathering physically and they've completely switched to digital meetings. Is a church that only gathers is digitally a church? Well, the digital meeting only format presents challenges to fellowship. With a digital sermon worship service, some folks will just fade off silently and quietly slide out of the church community. And I, we are speaking from experience on that. It is very difficult to maintain a close relationship in an online fashion. It takes a lot of effort and commitment to maintain digital relationships. So rather than taking the limbo approach, how low can you go, we should really think about what's the most that we can do to promote community. The focus of a body of believers needs to be on community gathering together. Promoting community really means fighting isolation. Realistically, 
COVID distancing and things like winter storms promote isolation. Surely everybody's had some sliver of feeling of isolation recently. So the principle is we want to advocate community and fight isolation. COVID and Zoom church only, a steady diet of that, nudge us towards isolation. I desire our church to body to pull city church toward community. So an application question, what can I do this week to pull others around me out of isolation and welcome them into community? How is the Lord leading you to serve other believers who are isolated? Secondly, you may be a Christian that gets a job outside the Metroplex, you need to find a new church, whatever. Um, So the questions that you can ask when you're visiting this church, do they gather together? Are they partaking of communion to commune with God? Are they encouraging believers? Are they telling believers about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? Are they proclaiming the kingdom of God, declaring the whole counsel of God? Are they protecting the flock from false teachers outside and uh, twisting of the perversions of the gospel inside the church? Are they edifying believers through the word? Are they helping the weak and giving generously? Are they praying to the Lord? If those things are present, then it is a church. If these items are missing, that is not a church. It is not a life-giving community. So again, just to emphasize, since this is a really important part, the activities of a giving community, a life-giving community, they need to be gathering and communing with God and believers on a regular basis to encourage and comfort. They need to be involved in prayer, service, and giving. They need to edify by the scriptures, proclaiming the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus, and protecting from false teachers and teachings outside and inside. So, now that we have listed the essential activities within a life-giving community, let's look at the safety afforded by a life-giving community. Satan is always present in destabilizing forces, trying to tear and rip apart the local body of believers. Paul soberly instructed the Ephesian elders to care for the believers because he said, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, lest you think that Paul was maybe a little deranged on this false teacher stuff, go read John's warning to the first church in Revelation. That first church in Revelation chapter 2, that's Ephesus. And it says, uh, so John says in Revelation 2, verses 1 and 2, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which were churches. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. So even John recognized and saw this problem with false teachings in Ephesus. So Paul warns them about wolves, the false apostle, and John echoes that same sentiment in Revelation 2. Satan is still attacking the church from outside, and he wants to twist and pervert the gospel inside the church. 
That's why the Holy Spirit appoints elders in the church to care for the flock. The overseers, elders, are to protect the flock from fierce wolves outside and to maintain the purity of the gospel from becoming twisted and perverted. These dangers to the church and the protections afforded by the church local body of believers show that the importance of being inside a life-giving community. So recently, at least at my house anyway, there was a fierce winter storm. There were repeated warnings from the National Weather Service, bring your pets inside, because they wouldn't survive outside, unsheltered. Now, if you happen to have a pet bison, does anybody have a pet bison here? If you had a pet bison, I think they're going to do fine outside, okay? They're large animals, close to a ton. They've got a shaggy coat. They're good to go, okay? So if you have a pet bison, you don't have to bring him inside. However, the pet in my household is a little 16-pound short-haired dog named Taquito. He's not going to do well outside. He gets to come inside for his own protection and safety. So in the same way, there are howling spiritual winds of hopelessness and despair in our world today. So a public service announcement from the Spiritual Weather Service tells you to seek shelter immediately. Unsheltered Christians are open to spiritual turmoil and upheaval. Burrow into a church, a life-giving community to find safety. Membership Membership inside a church affords protection from the storms outside, and leaders are called to protect and keep you safe inside the church. A life-giving community through appointed overseers provides protection and safety for those that are within that body of believers. Now that we've seen the safety afforded by a life-giving community, let's look at the owner of a life-giving community. So in Acts chapter 20, there's bunches and bunches and bunches of churches. I'd probably like seven. It's really hard to tell exactly how many, and some of them are areas and regions, and I get confused. But anyway, there's a bunch of them. Is it best to think of those churches as being owned by Paul? Paul may have been the one who started them. Or are they really property of the members of that church who resided there? The same way as city church. Is city church best thought of as belonging to the elders, or does city church really belong to the members, those who come? Paul answers that question, fortunately, in verse 28, where he says, Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flocks, speaking to the elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 28. So, as to the question, who owns the life-giving community, is it elders or members, the answer is neither. God is the sole owner of the church of God. His name is on the deed for city church. He purchased the blood through the blood of his son. He purchased the church through the blood of his son, and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes and provides human overseers for the church. So, city church is owned by the Heavenly Father, purchased by the blood of his son, Jesus and directed by elders and overseers who are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Paul incorporates the Trinity there into the ownership of the church. Now, because we have a life-giving Savior, church must be a life-giving community. So first of all, church is a life-giving community where we come to receive deeply and abundantly of eternal life 
through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we come and we receive because of that life that is given. Okay, so that's the first part. But on the second level, church is also a place where we can give our lives. Paul instructs in verse 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So a believer can invest, can give their lives inside the actions of a life-giving community. And even Paul, of course, talked about his ministry. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So even if you consider Paul a missionary and evangelist, he is still doing all of that to build up the church. He, has, he gave his life for the church. That was his ministry. So just as Jesus gave his life for the church, each one of us also has an opportunity to give our lives to the church. Since Susan and I have moved to Fort Worth in 2008, we have kind of been looking for a place to invest our lives. It's been manifested by a restlessness in our souls. We have been on a journey to find a church home that is a life-giving community. Not only to receive abundant life, that's step one from that community, but also to invest our lives in something eternal, the souls of those whom God has created. So Susan and I have found that life-giving community at City Church. Everybody is in, you are investing your life in something. It's just the question of what do you want to invest your life in? So again, to summarize, we are called to two concepts. Come to church, a life-giving community, and receive deeply of God's abundant and merciful, soul-satisfying eternal life. Be a Eutychus, find life. And secondly, we are called to pour our lives into church and the eternal souls therein. This is the way, or a way we can follow Jesus' example of life-giving and receive blessings for giving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have placed us inside of life-giving communities, that you have made us for relationship, you have made us for relationship with you and with believers. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity today that we had to gather together to enjoy being with others and to turn our hearts and our minds and our souls toward you and to be encouraged and edified. Lord, I ask that you would provide safety inside the church. I pray for us as elders that you would give us wisdom and discernment that we would know how to protect and how to preserve the purity of the gospel, that uh, it might be a life-giving source for those inside of City Church. And Heavenly Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name.